Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WAB in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, there's a new scholarship program to support future civil rights lawyers not only to just pay for law school, but to actually provide training and support and a fellowship to kind of get students off the ground. Sherilyn Eiffel from the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund joins me. Plus, WABE legal analyst and defense attorney Paige Pate offers his insight regarding Fulton DA Fonnie Willis's request to have the Rashard Brooks shooting death transferred to another prosecutor those conversations coming later in the program. But first this, several hundred people attended a vigil Saturday for the workers that died in that North Georgia poultry plant after a chemical leak. Now, six people we know died and more than a dozen were injured at the Foundation Food Group plant in Gainesville. Federal officials are investigating the case, the cause of the liquid's nitrogen leak. Now, Dr. Catherine Lemos is the chair and CEO of the U.S. Chemical Safety Board. And during a press conference this weekend, she said they're looking into all all possible causes of the leak, including some equipment which had been recently been installed. We do know that major portions of the liquid nitrogen system, both interior and exterior, were installed and commissioned in the last four to six weeks. So this is relatively new equipment and system at this site from what we have understood. Now, Lemos went on to say, depending on the complexity of this investigation, it could take several years. In other news, starting this week, travelers on all forms of public transit will be required to wear face masks. Now, the order from the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was actually issued Friday. Now, this includes airplanes, ships, ferries, trains, subways, buses, taxis, and rideshares. And new guidelines take effect, well, at 11.59 p.m. this evening. This comes as Georgia continues to ramp up efforts to distribute the COVID-19 vaccines. At this time, more than 923 have been vaccines have been administered statewide. Now, in total, pay attention, 749,867 cases have been confirmed in Georgia. This goes back to last year, of course. In addition, 50,237 people have been hospitalized. And of those, 8,399 considered ICU admissions. And to date, 12,570 Georgians have died due to the virus. As always, our information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And of course, right now, also taking place, the Georgia General Assembly, where all lawmakers are gathering for its fourth week of the 2021 session. Well, Senate Rouge Chairman Republican Jeff Mullis used his point of personal privilege today to express his frustration with professional athletes. Won't they play sports and leave the party politics for us? I think that's the way it should be. I'm tired of watching political statements on the football field or the basketball court. I think that should be for the politics of the, of the nation. Now, okay, they have the right to, uh, for their political opinion, absolutely. But I have the right to not support people in celebrity positions who want to offer their, their position for, to try to turn the election cycle. Now, Senator Mullis went on to say he's no longer watching the NBA or the NFL. Guess he's going to miss the Super Bowl. Well, joining me now to give the latest on other happenings, probably more important, are WAB reporters Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurt. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to be here. Hey, Rose. Would you care to comment on the senator's remarks? You know, I just keep thinking about um, when I when I heard that and, and listening to it again, Senator Leffler's campaign. Um, this was, you know, she 
she made a decision to break with the WNBA team that she owns, um, which, you know, players were advocating uh, for Black Lives Matter. And she Mm -hmm. called Black Lives Matter a political movement. And it was a real fissure between her and the team. And, you know, it's it's really a dividing line. And Republicans seem to have have taken up this um, this line about about politics and sports. And so much social movement has come uh, throughout the years from sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how you divorce the two. Um, you know, last week we saw uh, people taking to the floor honoring Hank Aaron. You know, mm-hmm. Hank Aaron was very outspoken about civil rights. So you can't have, yeah, I guess you can't have one way or the other. Very interesting. That's sure. Emil and Emma, before we get to the other happenings, let's just get some clarity here because we know still members of the Georgia General Assembly, they are currently required to receive two COVID-19 tests per week. Is that correct, Emma? That is correct. And, you know, last week we had a bit of drama where it was made public that one House member, Republican David Clark from Buford, did refuse to take any tests and he was removed from the House floor because of it. So the Speaker is trying to enforce this rule. And we do know that he ended up taking a test after all that pressure and attention on Thursday. The big question is, did he do you take one today? Um, and, and we'll find out probably tomorrow. And we should note that Speaker Austin has been saying this every time he, he reminds the lawmakers, you have to do that. And even today, he said, if you haven't done it, go get it done or you will not be allowed to be in this chamber. Uh, let's get now, I guess, to, to the legislation here. Uh, let's start with COVID-19. Is there anything new so far in terms of legislation as relates to COVID-19 and the pandemic? Uh, there's a little bit of talk of extending the the protection for businesses, which was passed last year, um, which shields them against uh, lawsuits brought on by people who contract COVID uh, going uh, into their businesses or their establishments. Now, we have heard from a number of legal experts who say that this really doesn't make that big of a difference because if, if businesses are following best practices and making a reasonable effort to keep their their customers and employees safe, then that should protect them. But we'll see whether or not that gets extended. And we should note that there was a measure that there's going to be some additional funding for the State Department of Public Health, which that makes sense for their budget. Emma? Yeah, I mean, that's where we've seen a lot of kind of the coronavirus, um, the the pandemic reflected in at the legislature right now is the budget because you know, everyone's looking at the Department of Public Health's budget thinking, wait a minute, we we need to make sure that this this department is ready in the long in the long haul, Mm -hmm. because the department has received more than a billion dollars in federal funding. But if you look at just the state budget numbers, you know, the governor's proposal didn't have much of an increase at all. The, The House decided to put a bit more in there and we'll see what the Senate does. But um, I think that, you know, people, there's a real understanding of the importance of public health funding right now. And it's something that that lawmakers are are negotiating and working on. And another issue that's been at play this year is election reform. Lawmakers on both sides now have proposed changes to the way voting happens in Georgia. Now, either one of you can pick that up first. Let's begin with this. The voting ID for absentee ballots. Yeah, the currently, um, you know, only when you vote in person do you have to show a photo ID. Uh, they did the signature match with um, the absentee ballots, which there are you know, issues with that on both sides as far as how reliable uh, it actually is in, in verifying the identity. Um, but, um, you know, we, we just saw a poll in the AJC today where a lot uh, of voters uh, support the, the enhanced uh, ID protections, but they do not support rolling back the no excuse absentee voting and other measures because they just don't believe um, that there was any fraud in uh, the 2020 elections. Emil, let me stay with you for a moment. What's the, and Emma, I'll let you, my apologies, I'll let you chime in, but what's the tone of the legislature you're hearing from lawmakers? Are they willing to perhaps approve one and, and not the other is that a dog <laughs> is, that your, is that your dog emil oh. that's not mine <laughs> emma is that your dog yes she's gonna be quiet now <laughs> i love it emma it shows that we're all just wab reporters we're, we're, we're human we have we're family. pandemic reporting here there you guys. go <laughs> Go ahead, so, Emil. So there was there was a lot of momentum coming into the session for rolling back no excuse absentee voting, but that has since stalled a bit because you have people like Speaker Ralston, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, who have said they don't support 
uh, getting rid of no excuse absentee voting. But it seems like everybody on the Republican side is on board for requiring the photo ID for absentee voting. Go ahead, Emma. And I would just say the political pressure on Republicans to do something is so high that Mm. I think we're going to see something happen soon. And I'm watching for maybe kind of a a bigger proposal that might come from someone in leadership in either party to really, um, you know, be the vehicle for that, because they they have to do something, I think, would be the message that a lot of their their constituents are sending them. I want to get this in, because before the session started, there was talk that Perhaps the Georgia Secretary of State should not be an elected position, but should be appointed. Has that died down at all? Do either one of you know that? It has kind of died down. You know, um, it's it's unclear. That was maybe a little bit of posturing. I don't (laughs) know. But, you know, the the idea of taking away the, the vote from from citizens is a really strong one. And I I think that that might actually not be a uniformly popular idea among all Republicans, even though that was an idea floated by the House Speaker. So I and I don't know, I don't know exactly um, where it might end up, but it feels mm-hmm. like that would be very heavy lift. And then what about casino gambling? It seems like every session there's always talk, you know, could some measure be, but this would have to really come down to a, a constitutional amendment, correct? They really want the people to vote on whether or not this state should allow casino gambling. What are you all hearing? Yeah, that's going to be the, 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 the bigger hurdle to cross is casino gambling. Sports betting had a, a lot of momentum before the pandemic hit last year with all the major sports teams getting behind it. And that's a little bit easier because they can kind of roll that into the, the lottery system. And there's already a, a system in place to handle that. But you're right, casino gambling would take that, that constitutional amendment. So it would take a, a higher a higher bar to cross. Another focus is, oh, go ahead, Emma. I was just going to add, it's just a strange issue that really doesn't fall along party lines. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's not really a caucus position on it in either in either party. So it's one of those issues that sort of sticks around but has never quite made it through be, because of that, I think. Yeah. And another focus this year, and actually we know that Governor Brian Kemp has talked about this. He mentioned it in his State of the State address, the desire to repeal Georgia's citizen arrest law and and maybe repeal or even amend following the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Let's take a listen. The deranged behavior that led to this tragedy was excused away because of a law that is ripe for abuse and enables sinister evil motives. That's why my administration plans to introduce significant reforms to our state citizens arrest statute and working with legislative leaders and members of both parties. I believe that we can take another step toward a better, safer, and more just future for our state. We can again send a clear message. Georgia is a state that protects all of its people and fights for injustice wherever it is found. And notice the governor used the word perhaps amend and not repeal there. What are you all hearing? I was actually um, sending some texts around about this today because I'm expecting this to come directly from one of the governor's floor leaders because he you know, has made it a priority of his own. And I think we're going to see that legislation maybe by the end of this week. Um, but yeah, amend, um, reform will be will be the, the operative words there um, and and I think that, however, there, there is a lot of support among Republicans and Democrats for, mm-hmm. for doing something to this law. Yeah, the, the bipartisan support is definitely there for that. Uh, what there's not bipartisan support for, a lot of Democrats are pushing uh, for the end of private prisons, which we've seen some movement on the federal level with mm-hmm. that. Uh, and then also the stand your ground laws. There's support from that among Democrats, uh, but not necessarily among Republicans. And there's so much to cover. I'll give you all an opportunity to let our listeners know what you all are going to be monitoring this week. Emil, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, going to be checking out. Uh, they're supposed to have the uh, an update on the film industry. Of course, that's been hit hard by the pandemic, but still ramping up again. So we'll get an update on how that's going. And then continuing to follow these, uh, these voting bills. Uh, certainly a, a hot topic continues to be for the last several months. Mm-hmm. Emma. The Senate is is working on the amended budget right now. So that's the budget for the rest of this fiscal year. And I'm really curious to see what they change from the House's version and, and how that all shakes out, especially public health funding. Out of all the great conversation we just had regarding some very important uh, legislation here in Emma, I have an email from a listener that wants to know what kind of dog you have. <laughs> She's a Dakota sport retriever, which is a weird kind of dog, but it's a mix of a golden retriever and a cocker spaniel. And she 
is usually a really good radio assistant, but um, today she had a bit of a slip up. Our WAB listeners care, don't they? WAB reporters Emil Moffat and Emma Hurd, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation, y'all. Enjoy it. Anytime. Closer Look returns in just a moment. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis wants another prosecutorial body to handle the shooting death case of Rashard Brooks by a former Atlanta police officer. Now, this was first reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution last week. Brooks was shot and killed in a Wendy's drive through in southwest Atlanta by then APD. APD officer Garrett Roth last June. Another officer, Devin Brosnan, was charged with aggravated assault and two counts of violating his oath. Now, former Fulton DA Paul Howard quickly sought charges against the two officers. DA Willis is asking Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr to have the case transferred. What's the potential legal ramifications of all this? Well, there's one man we want to ask. It's Paige Pate. He's our defense. He's a not my defense attorney. He's a defense attorney. <laughs> but who knows? You never know, Paige. I'm ready when you are. <laughs> He's a defense attorney and WABE's legal analyst. And he joins me now. Paige, welcome back to the program. I hope that was not <laughs> a portrait of something. In the you future. never know when somebody needs me, but when they do, I'm always available. Hey, Paige, let's begin with your reaction to District Attorney Funny Willis wanting to transfer this to another prosecutor. What do you make of that? Not surprised at all. I mean, this was such a difficult case, and I do agree with what um, the defense lawyers have said, that it was mishandled from the very beginning. I think it was clear that Paul Howard was trying to milk this case for as much political value as he could possibly get from it. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily blame him for that. He was in a tight reelection bid that he ultimately lost to Ms. Willis. So to have somebody from outside of the Fulton County DA's office get a fresh look at the case, uh, try to make some decisions about moving forward, if you're going to move forward. I think that's really Mm -hmm. the the whole case is going to be reopened. And this officer or these two officers may end up not being charged at all. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. have to see. Now, before we get into AG Carr's options here, I want to go back to something that D.A. Willis said. And she talked about that she believed D.A. Howard was using the case to gain favor with voters. And she cited that this was part that this violated the Georgia Bar Association, the rule that deals with professional conduct. Um, I've looked up that rule. I know you know it. What's your take on that? Could he have possibly violated? Well, I think it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does. Uh, the Georgia Bar um, has a rule that applies specifically to prosecutors. And it tells a prosecutor that you cannot use facts about the case, evidence in a case, or, or really your opinion about the case to try to influence public opinion outside of the courtroom. And the reason for that rule is we want to have fair trials. We, we don't want people who are going to later serve on a jury to have already reached a conclusion about the case based on one side's presentation um, way before the case ever got to court. So the rule applies to prosecutors. Paul Howard was a prosecutor at the time, and I don't think there's any doubt that the news conferences that he held, uh, playing the video, interpreting parts of the video, some of which I think he got wrong, uh, that all of that was meant to move public opinion in one direction. And whether that's the right direction or not, it's really up to a jury. And the prosecutors should not be doing that before the case goes to court. Well, for Attorney General Carr, he has some options. Uh, One, can he just say no? Is that the first one saying, no, we think you all should go ahead and prosecute that? Is that part? Or will he really take in consideration that she wants this case transferred? Yeah, the one thing he can't do is say no. Uh, Georgia law um, allows a district attorney who feels that there's a conflict to say, I don't want my office to handle it. And instead of the DA saying, well, I'm just going to send it to the prosecutor in the county next door, it goes back to or or goes to initially the attorney general's office, who can then supposedly make an objective determination about which office in the state would be best to handle it. We saw the problem that can arise if a DA just called another DA and said, hey, take this case off Mm -hmm. my hands. That's what happened in the Ahmaud Arbery case initially, when Jackie Johnson called uh, the DA just north of her and said, 
and his son was working in her office sure. and there were all sorts of potential conflicts. You know, hey, can you look at this case? That's not the way it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work the way Ms. Willis is doing it. Send it to the attorney general and then let the attorney general make a decision about which prosecutor should handle the case. That means that this case will not be held in Fulton County, correct? That means it will go to another county? Well, no, that, that, that's a different issue, Rose. Really? Uh, it just means a different prosecutor will handle the case. But mm-hmm. the case still will be tried in Fulton County unless... Sorry, there's some noise out here. That's okay. Unless we, we already a had a dog barking. The, Not a problem. <laughs> yeah, sounds like there's a street racing in front of my office, and I, I promise there's not. But the DA would have to, or ultimately the judge would have to show that you can't get an impartial jury in Fulton County for the case to actually move to a different county. You can have a different prosecutor, but you keep the same county. Paige, does the actions in of DA Willis, does it give the defense any type of support if they seek to either have the charges reduced or even the whole case dropped? Maybe. Uh, But what they cited in their initial motion to have Paul Howard in his office recused at the time suggested that those statements that Howard made, playing the evidence, commenting on the evidence, had an impact on a potential juror who may have been listening to it and watching. And of course, many people were watching TV and listening to Mm -hmm. the news about the case. And it may have led some people to go ahead and and form an opinion about the case. Um, But I don't think uh, a new prosecutor is going to say that that's going to necessarily end this. The new prosecutor should look at the GBI's investigation, should go ahead and maybe re-interview some of the witnesses who were there on the scene and make an independent determination, just putting aside what Paul Howard did, should we take this case forward or not? And, of course, attorneys for the family of Rayshard Brooks are are not happy with this uh, decision. Can they request anything? Would they have any input that could influence where or who gets this, this case? Or they just have to wait and see what Attorney General Carr's decision will be? Well, uh, they could. Uh, They could certainly contact the attorney general and say, look, we know you're going to be making a decision about this case. Here is where we think uh, the case should not go. In other words, if we think some other prosecutor may have already expressed an opinion or may some for some reason be conflicted out of the case. So they can try to have some input. But ultimately, the decision is left to the attorney general by Georgia law. So, Paige, during this time, and we know that Fonnie Willis was was elected in that runoff. So during from that time, she was elected into now the case has just been sort of dormant as there because she they knew she her department knew that she needed to make a decision. If you are the the families or even if you are the defendants here charged, it's got to be a little unsettling because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's true, Rose, but that's not unlike almost every other criminal case in the state of Georgia right now Uh, that. There, there are no juries, there are no trials. So pretty much every case, um, other than ones that you're going to have a guilty plea and there's going to be a sentencing, um, every other case is kind of in limbo, waiting on a time when juries are going to be impaneled in this state again. And, and that may be soon, but um, you know, neither side has lost any ground right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the defendants are out on bond. Uh, they have been indicted, but that indictment can be dismissed. Um, or it can go back in front of a new grand jury. And, and that's what the new DA may decide to do. That was my next question, because given all the information or evidence that Paul Howard thought he had, and now if it goes to a new prosecutor, can they have those charges dismissed, seek a new investigation, and then from that determine whether or not there will be any new charges? There's a, there's a lot that can happen here. There is a lot that can happen, and I think whichever district attorney gets this case, and we were going to talk about his options, and the attorney general doesn't have to assign it to another elected district attorney. He can keep it for himself and assign a prosecutor who works in the AG's office. He can even appoint a private lawyer to act as a special prosecutor in the case. But a big case like this that's going to require resources, probably assistant prosecutors, I think it only makes sense to give it to another uh, elected district attorney in the state who will have the staff and the resources uh, to handle it. But yes, they will give it a new look, uh, whether that means a new grand jury, uh, that's going to be up to the prosecutor. 
Paige, right before your segment, I was speaking with our WAB political reporters, Emil Moffat and Emma Hurt, and, and they mentioned that the Stand Your Ground, perhaps some type of amendment to this state law. What's your take on that and, and currently how, how it's written here in Georgia? Does it need to be repealed or amended? What's your take on that? Well, as far as the citizen's arrest law, uh, that makes no sense at all these days. I mean, it it may make some limited uh, sense in the context of uh, shoplifting at the Walmart or, or something of that effect where you can detain someone pending law enforcement arriving on the scene. But the way the law is written now, mm-hmm. it has created a defense for the individuals who were involved in the murder of Ahmaud Arbery mm-hmm. uh, because it is so vague. Uh, can we use deadly force? In what circumstances can we use deadly force? That should not even be an issue. That, that law should not be on the books. Uh, whether or not Georgia ends up doing anything with the Stand Your Ground law, which is a separate statute, I don't see that getting much play this session, but I don't think the citizen's arrest law is going to be on the books for much longer. And Paige, part of the area and one of the areas where you practice, obviously, is down there near in Glenn County. What have you heard regarding this case? I know you've been following it very closely. What's the latest developments, if any? Well, um, one of the defendants, uh, the guy with the video camera, went up for another bond request just uh, last week. That was denied. So all of the three defendants who were charged, they remain in in jail uh, waiting Mm -hmm. on a trial date. Uh, Some preliminary motions have been filed and ruled on by the judge. But basically the case, like so many other cases, is just sitting waiting on a Mm -hmm. trial date. And perhaps we're going to see it go to trial maybe late summer, early fall. That's possible. Regarding, uh, it was Roddy Bryant, the, the gentleman who filmed uh, Ahmaud Arbery when he was running, he was being chased, and, and then tragically the killing. Why would he, why do you think he was denied bail? I mean, he did not pull the trigger, so to speak. And I actually had a caller, a listener, email me some time ago about this, and, and we hadn't talked about it. Wanted to know, why would he still be detained when he didn't actually pull the trigger? Well, it looks like uh, Mr. Prine has a number of, of different problems. At, at the last bond hearing, the prosecutor raised the issue of him being under suspicion for some unrelated uh, sexual assault case. Oh, he got some other issues. Uh, it, it also appears he's got some other issues okay. coming. Um, All right. Yeah, and and but even putting aside whatever that case is, and they didn't go into too many details. He made a lot of comments um, prior to being charged about the case. Uh, his lawyer, who seems to to really fly by the seat of his pants, has made some really dangerous comments about the case as well. And and, and you've noticed, if you've been watching, how the cases have separated. Uh, mm-hmm. The the two McMichaels have nothing to do with Roddy Bryant anymore. So whenever there's a court hearing, it's two cases, not one case. But that's not going to be the way it is for trial. They'll all be tried together. Um, but there were other reasons to keep him detained. Again, it is a murder case. Mm-hmm. And the general rule, even though you're not going to find it in the law books anywhere, is that if you're charged with murder, you're usually going to be kept in custody. Of course, police officers seem to be an exception to that rule, as we're just talking about the Brooks mm-hmm. case. And Paige, before we end, I'm not sure if, if you're aware of this, but in speaking of the General Assembly, once again, there's some talk of creating a new Judicial Circuit for the state of Georgia. Currently, it's Senate Bill 9, and I believe it's got some overwhelming support. But for our listeners who may not understand, what's the big push to have a, an additional circuit court in, in Columbus, in Columbia? Any idea? Well, um, a lot of local politics, uh, honestly. Columbia County is very different from Richmond County, which is where the circuit is centered now in mm-hmm. Augusta. Uh, I think it's possible that Um, Some folks in Columbia County would like to have more control over the decisions and the cases in that circuit. Uh, But from their standpoint, there also is a population-based reason for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, DeKalb County's judicial circuit used to include uh, Rockdale County uh, until that was split off, just given the amount of people in DeKalb County. So it's not uncommon for a county that used to be part of a multi-county circuit, once it gets sufficient population, splitting off and forming its own judicial circuit. And finally, finally, uh, impeachment trial next week. Uh, what do you make of all this? I didn't get any calls, <laughs> which is good <laughs> because it doesn't look like this guy's going to pay anybody and his defense makes no sense whatsoever. So 
kind of happy not to be involved with that. But this is one of those trials where I think we all know the outcome before the trial even begins. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just not enough votes, uh, I think, to convict him uh, on impeachment. And unfortunately, the disqualification issue, which only requires a simple majority, mm -hmm. um, you don't reach that until you have a finding of conviction on impeachment, the way I understand it. So I think we're just in for another show, but ultimately no real change at the conclusion. Defense attorney, and again, for clarity, not mine, defense attorney and WABE legal analyst. I already got an email about that. <laughs> Paige, 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 as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. By the way, uh, Grace Walker, my producer, wanted you to know that the early predictions are next year that Georgia will going to win the national championship in college football. Well, I've never heard that before, Rose. <laughs> it seems like that's the prediction every year until we don't do it. So. And that's exactly what I told my producer there. Right. Well, always looking forward with hope and optimism, right? It's 2021. Anything can happen. Those are two words we're all looking for this year. Paige, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Russ. My name is Justin Schaefer. I live here in Kirkwood. I love the generosity of our neighbors. I run a nonprofit committee of our neighborhood organization that provides repairs to low-income neighbors' homes, and they give us a ton of money, and the businesses around here give us a lot of money, and we can always ask them for help anytime we need it. I'd like to see our elderly neighbors have tax relief and not have to pay property taxes at the rates that the market folks have to pay it at so they can stay in their homes. My name's Nancy and I live right here in Kirkwood. I love the diversity of our community and the kind of acceptance of all different people. There's a lot of gentrification here, so the folks who have lived here for many, many years often can't afford it anymore, so I don't know how to change that. It's just happening everywhere in Atlanta, but I do feel really sorry for those who have lived here for a long time and now they can't afford it anymore. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund was founded back in 1940. At a time, it was one of the nation's first civil rights law firms. And the organization's first leader was Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first black justice, of course, on the Supreme Court. The goal was for the organization to serve as the, quote, legal arm of the civil rights movement. After more than 80 years of doing this work, this past Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, they launched a new initiative. Today, the challenges we face make clear that it is time once again for LDF to invest in the growth and development of civil rights lawyers in the South, where the majority of black people still live. And so it is with great pleasure that I share with you the news that today LDF has launched the Marshall Motley Scholars Program, an innovative educational and training opportunity that will develop and support a new cohort of civil rights attorneys to serve black communities in the South. And that was Sherlyn Ifo, president and director counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She says one reason the cost of law school can be a barrier. So when we spoke, she told me more about this scholars program. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we get into the details of this scholarship program, I'd like to get your thoughts because President Biden 
releasing and talking about some initiatives as it relates to dealing with uh, systemic racism in this nation from what you've heard and is very early in the president's pledge of what he wants to do. Um, what do you make of it so far? Well, it's a first step. Uh, it's a it's a certainly a shift in tone, uh, which is important, and it's a statement of commitment. Um, you know, I think we're inclined to push past those things and say, "Give me the meat," um, and and I feel the same way. And and we will continue to push this push this administration. But you know, when uh, President Trump uh, came out of the gate with the Muslim ban, uh, it was a it was tone setting. <laughs> It was also an executive order, and we understood that it was an opening salvo in who that administration you know, was going to be. So I see this the same way. It matters. It matters for a president to, to set the tone. It matters that um, the executive orders uh, announced yesterday touch a range of issues related to race, but obviously the very, very deep and important work lies in the weeks ahead to ensure that we have str- a strong uh, unshakable framework that will allow us to really push for uh, racial equity and to really dismantle uh, racial injustice in this country. And coming off of last summer, obviously the protest uh, mm-hmm. calls for racial and social justice. How optimistic are you that we are at a point now in this nation that there will be some actionable outcomes as it relates to racial justice? Well, there must be. Um, it's, it's my view. Um, that's why we're pushing so hard to uh, move the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which passed the House last year. Uh, that should be the starting point of our conversation about uh, policing for sure. Um, but, but more importantly is that the protests and the activism and the demand uh, by, by black people in communities around the country to reimagine the whole system of public safety is even more powerful. And I don't think there's any stopping the momentum of that conversation. It has opened up um, a, a discussion that needs to happen. It's it's opened up that discussion with power and with uh, strategy and with planning. And we have an opportunity to do a reset in this country and we simply must do it. What we've seen, I think, especially over the past year and maybe even more intensely over the past weeks is that um, America is a deeply troubled country. Our democracy has fundamental cracks in its foundation. Uh, those cracks are um, very much connected to uh, the ongoing engagement with white supremacy in this country. And if the democracy is to survive, it can no longer entangle itself with white supremacy. It's a matter of the survival of American democracy, not just the survival and thriving of black people. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe that we are at a point where transformation uh, can happen and will happen. The fight for racial justice, obviously a the core of the organization's mission. But for our listeners who may not be aware of the organization and its mission, has it evolved much from the 1940s to today? Because it's at the core, it's still the same work that needs to be done. I'm actually proud to say that, you know, LDF is one of the few national civil rights, certainly legal organizations in which racial justice is the mission, (laughs) you know, Um, not justice writ large, not social justice, racial justice. We are unapologetically and explicitly focused on um, racial equality and justice for black people in this country. And we recognize that that opens the door to equality and justice for all people in this country, as that is the way it has always worked and cascaded. Um, And so we remain committed to that mission what changes, of course, are the tactics. Mm-hmm. What changes are uh, the areas of, of focus? Um, what changes is our need to respond to um, the shape-shifting nature of, of racism and white supremacy? No, in 1940, that we were, you know, we were not focused on artificial intelligence and discrimination sure. in internet platforms, sure. you know. Um, but we are today, and so. Um, you know, we have to be able to be responsive to however um, racism and structural racism makes itself manifest in American um, life. And we, we, you know, our job where we develop our expertise in our third eye is our ability to see it, our ability to see uh, the way in which, you know, racial injustice kind of uh, creates itself within the context of a, of a given moment in our society. 
And I imagine that is a branch that leads to you all wanting to train new civil rights attorneys in the South. Um, How did this mission, the mission of this new program come about, the Marshall Motley Scholars Program? Well, it's important, first of all, to remember that this is a part of LDF's history. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of LDF's work has always been in the South, still is today. Uh, Most of our litigation um, remains uh, in the South, which is where most black people live. Uh, And we've never been able to do that work without partnering with local counsel. Um, And so while everybody knows, you know, Thurgood Marshall's name and they know Constance Baker Motley's name and uh, they know many of the, you know, legendary LDF lawyers, people also have to know Wiley Branton and C.B. King and John Walker, um, you know, and the lawyers who lived in the South who partnered with Marshall and the team uh, to advance civil rights litigation. So that's always been necessary for our work and still is to this day. We still partner with what we call cooperating attorneys, cooperating counsel. Um, In the early 1970s, late, well, actually early 1960s, um, and then through the 1960s, LDF uh, created a program to support the development of black law firms in Mm -hmm. the South. Hmm. And so uh, we would provide fellowships and money for you know law books and those in the days we still needed uh, you know full complement of law books in your office and uh, the space to to start a practice Um, and we were very successful in supporting uh, the creation of black law firms and interracial law firms in the south in north carolina in virginia in tennessee in florida in virginia Um, and we were basically incubating uh, this this important field um, so that there would be uh, black civil rights lawyers available to the communities where they live and, of course, available to partner with us in our work. And we feel the need to return to that model now and, in fact, even more urgent because the cost of law school is so uh, high. It mm-hmm. is prohibitive yeah. for many young people who, in their heart, have the passion to become civil rights lawyers and who have the um, intellectual discipline to uh, you know, become uh, excellent civil rights lawyers, but can't do so because of the cost of law school. And so they end up at law firms or they don't go to law school at all. Um, and we, we have been thinking for some time about how can we strengthen a cooperating network, attorney network for the future, um, because the work has to go forward. And so when we were approached by a donor a few years ago about the possibility of supporting uh, civil rights lawyers through law school, we, we then began to build out an even more c- complex program that uh, carried with it some of the elements of what we had done in the 1960s, which is not only to just pay for law school, mm-hmm. but to actually provide training and support and a fellowship to kind of get uh, students off the ground. And then finally, in exchange for all of this, a commitment from, uh, from these new lawyers that they will work in the South mm-hmm. for a period of time. I imagine you all are going to have a tough time not necessarily getting students to apply, but how do you identify the students who will be the first wave? You all don't have your work cut out for you. Yeah, um, we do, and and we are already seeing um, lots of lots of folks hitting the hitting the website and beginning their applications, which is very very exciting. It's going to be difficult um, mm-hmm. to to choose, but uh, th- this is not for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. it, you have to know you want to go to law school. You have to have the passion to to be focused on uh, civil rights law and it's focused on racial justice. Mm -hmm. So civil rights law cuts a a wide swath, but this is for people who want to practice in the area of racial justice. You have to have the kind of um, dedication and excellence, um, frankly, to be able to make it through this program because you're gonna be placed at LDF and other national civil rights organizations. And when we select interns and even those who are with us during the summer and fellows, they go through a very rigorous process. Mm-hmm. Everyone doesn't get um, to spend time at, at LDF or these other organizations. So you have to be able to meet, you know, we have to see is something in you that means that you'll be able to meet that standard. And then you have to have the willingness to, um, you know, be in the South and to and to want to um, to really begin your career there and have your practice there. So, um, you know, it is a a bit self-selective first and foremost, Mm -hmm. but we anticipate there are going to be many incredible applicants and we're just going to do the hard work of doing the best we can uh, to select those for the for the the, that will be awarded this program. I want to shift for a moment and talk about you, because based on everything you just told me about 
folks who are committed and passionate about doing this work, what can you share with them? Because you've been doing this work. Well, I came, you know, I was raised at a particular time in America, you know, when I, um, you know, felt that that anything was possible in terms of being able to change our society. You know, I've I've always talked about being deeply moved by um, hearing Barbara Jordan during the Watergate hearings. I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. There was nothing else on TV. That's why we were watching it. It wasn't that I was so, you know, uh, dedicated. Uh, But to see and hear this black woman speak so powerfully about the Constitution uh, and have such um, just such a moral standing was incredible for me. And, you know, having kind of the the exposure to, you know, all these documentaries and books and so forth about the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. it it just seemed to me that there was um, so much potential power in, in, in the moment and that you could do anything and that you could be transformative. And I wanted very much uh, to be a part of that. And so for me, it was, you know, that was the kernel. And then of course, once you, once you involve yourself with those issues, whether you are in college, whether you're in high school, uh, whether you're in law school, you know, I think it builds on itself. I find the work of serving uh, my own, you know, community and the work of justice to be incredibly rewarding. And I, um, you know, I hear people complain about law school. I, I went to law school because I wanted to do this work. Mm-hmm. And so I enjoyed law school <laughs> because I knew exactly why I was there. And I had a cohort of friends who also shared the same passion. Um, and so that made it you know, possible. And then you start doing the work and there's just nothing like the bone deep satisfaction of knowing what you're doing is good and necessary. And um, also just your clients are, you know, you're going to meet the most amazing people you have ever met. Um, in towns and communities and counties um, all over all over this country and to me that you know the most rewarding part of the job is is really your colleagues and your clients so students have already started applying how long is this process and when do you expect for these students to start you know the taking part in the actual program well the deadline for the for completing the applications is February 16th so that's coming up soon um, and then we'll get through our kind of first round and we've got several rounds and we're committed to selecting our 10 students of the first cohort by May, by early May. And, um, and then, you know, those students will be starting law school in the fall. And so it begins and we begin this process, you know, together of um, supporting students through this program and giving students the exposure uh, that they need to be able to um, to feed their commitment to do civil rights work. And, you know, for us, it's, as I said, it's an investment in the future. And one of the things I think we've seen over the last four years is that the work must go on, that this battle is far from over. And so it's critical that we ensure that we have troops for the battles ahead. You know, we can't just wait till the moment and then hope. And what we've also seen is that the South is in a period of tremendous political transformation, grassroots mobilization. Uh, It always has been a place of tremendous, um, you know, cultural rooting and grounding, uh, but also has always been the place from which, you know, our greatest civil rights struggles and um, victories have emanated. So our job is to make sure that the South has what it needs in terms of lawyers to be able to play their role. Lawyers can't solve everything and civil rights lawyers can't solve everything. But when civil rights lawyers are ready and prepared and and they are working with uh, grassroots organizers and activists, and when they are working in a time of political transformation, they truly can make an extraordinary difference. And finally, this next generation of civil rights lawyers, are there some areas that you really are hopeful that you have a group of, of civil rights lawyers who will be ready some say environmental justice, um, obviously voting rights. What do you add to that list? Well, certainly uh, criminal justice reform. Um, you know, there is a true opportunity for us to upend a system that has um, really oppressed black people for, you know, since its, since its creation. Uh, it, it emanates from, you know, the kind of social control uh, that, 
that white supremacy demanded, you know, after Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And we have to tr fundamentally transform it. And I think that young people are, um, you know, thinking about this in exciting ways. Civil rights lawyers need to be partnered in that work. Um, and this is the moment to, to do it. Like, uh, you know, like education, mm -hmm. criminal justice practices happen for the most part at the local level. They happen at the state and the, and the local level. So you need to have lawyers who are working at that level to be able to really assist that transformation. Some of it will happen nationally, mm -hmm. and cer certainly the national transformation can help set direction. But at the end of the day, what happens in, um, criminal, in criminal justice practices happens at the local level. And so uh, it's gonna be important to, for you know, the new cohort of civil rights lawyers to be ready to catch the wave and, and uh, be of service as that transformation unfolds. Sherilyn Eiffel, President and Director of Counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. If you missed any part of today's show, we got you. You can catch up on all the interviews you missed at wabe.org slash closer look. And let me know what you think. Tweet me at WABE Rose Scott or send an email to rose at WABE.org. This is member supported 90.1 WABE Atlanta. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.